Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. Anyone who wants to be president has to come through New Hampshire first, and no one covers New Hampshire politics like WMUR. I'm WMUR political director Adam Sexton, and we hope you can join us every week for this podcast. Good evening and welcome to our Conversation with the Candidate series. I'm Adam Sexton and our guest this evening is Representative Eric Swalwell of California. Tonight we'll be getting to know Congressman Swalwell and where he stands on key issues. At the start of our show, I'll be asking the candidates some questions. And then after a break, we'll have our studio audience ask their questions in a town hall format. But before we begin with that, let's take a quick look at the candidate's biography. Eric Swalwell was born in Iowa in 1980. His family later moved to California where he grew up in the Bay Area. He received a Division I soccer scholarship to Campbell University in North Carolina, but after an injury, he transferred to the University of Maryland, where he got his bachelor's and his law degree. Swalwell was the deputy district attorney in Alameda County, California. He also served on the Dublin City Council before winning a seat in the U.S. House of Representatives in 2012. He has since been re-elected three times. Representative Swalwell serves on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence, the House Judiciary Committee, and he is co-chair of the Democratic Steering and Policy Committee. He also co-founded the United Solutions Caucus and founded Future Forum, which is a group of young Democratic members of Congress who focus on issues important to millennials, including college costs and student loan debt. Congressman Swalwell is married and has two children. Congressman Swalwell, thanks so much for joining us Thank on Conversation you, with the Candidate. So you're here, you're running for president, and you've been outspoken in your opposition to President Trump and his administration. Is it safe to say that he is a primary reason why you're running for president? Well, he and what he has done uh, to our economy and our standing uh, in the world. And so I want to go big on the issues we take on. No more sweeping them under the rug, especially health care, education and environment and gun violence. Be bold with the solutions. I'm just you know, fed up and impatient around a Washington that's incremental and gridlocked and do good uh, in the way that we govern and treat each other. And so go big, be bold, do good. Uh, that's the reason I'm running. And as a candidate who is the first in my family to go to college, have student loan debt that I'm paying off today, I think I can, you know, credibly uh, tell the American family uh, and worker that I understand why you work hard and what you expect it to add up to and can bring experience on day one that'll matter having been in Congress for seven years but also optimism uh, that we can do better than we are today and be inventive in the solutions that we offer. You've also been very outspoken in regards to the Russia investigation and allegations of obstruction of justice on behalf of the president. This is obviously in process today, but taking a step back, do you believe that the Attorney General, Bob Barr, has crossed a line in some way in defending the president? Well, I think he's crossed a line into being the president's lawyer rather than being America's lawyer. His job uh, is to protect our Constitution to protect our democracy from outside attacks uh, and he seems to be parroting you know and embedded with the president and his team you know the reason I care so much Adam about what happened with Russia is not necessarily because of who they sought to help and they did help Donald Trump but it's what they have sought to take away from all of us which is a country that has free markets free ideas and a freedom to dream and for a president who wants to you know so tout that he's the defender of capitalism well, when you allow a country like Russia uh, to attack us and destroy, you know, the foundation of our democracy and turn us against each other, that takes away, you know, the freedoms that we really do enjoy here. And that makes us look more like Russia, where you have a top floor economy, where only the people at the top benefit and everyone else gets crumbs. I don't want 
Russia. I want us to look like an America where opportunity is given to everyone. So what is the Russia policy of a Swalwell administration? Uh, well, first we're going to you know, confront them directly over what they've done in our democracy. They're going to have to acknowledge what they did and they're going to have to explain uh, how you know, we can be assured they won't do it again. There will be tough sanctions uh, until anything changes. Also, we will engage our traditional allies like NATO, uh, who we've been able to count on in the past to be a check on Russia. You know, on the Intelligence Committee, I've traveled to the war zones, I've met with foreign leaders, I've taken classified briefings, I've been in the ring as our democracy's been on the ropes, and I'll be able to defend our country on day one. And I think the next president has to take an oath and then go on a global affirmation tour across the country to get our traditional partners back with us. Here at home, is there an overarching issue that you see as a winner for Democrats in 2020? Yeah, you know, health care, uh, and, and not just about coverage, and, and I support coverage for all with a public option, but I want to be the cures candidate. I want to challenge the country to seek, invest, and find cures in our lifetime, to invest in genomics, targeted therapies, and data sharing so that we could look cancer, ALS, Parkinson, Alzheimer patients in the eye and tell them that their government uh, is toiling away, investing in the life sciences so that we can bring down the cost, extend the quality of life, and do all we can to put a lot of new people to work uh, in those fields and, and really just break out of this rut where we're not investing uh, in, in ways that would affect everyone's lives. There does seem to be some consensus that things need to change on health care, less so perhaps in Washington on the issue of climate change. Do you worry that we're at a point right now where it's going to take a moonshot uh, just to do something that is consequential uh, to reversing this process? Yeah. First, we, we can't do it alone. We have to get back uh, into international accords. So I would host in the United States in my first 100 days an international accord so the United States is back with uh, the rest of the world to address uh, climate chaos. Uh, second, uh, investing here at home in a way that you're not displacing workers in the fossil fuel economy. So where there is fossil fuel extraction, uh, I would deploy technologies uh, in carbon capture, carbon sequestration, carbon reuse to bring them to carbon neutral. But then make sure a lot of those workers, the pipe fitters, the laborers, could have a skills bridge into the green collar economy of wind, solar, and fuel cells, where we'll have to make uh, investments. That's going to be uh, critical time uh, is not on our side here. Uh, and a New Hampshire student uh, recently uh, at a town hall that I had, she said, you know, Congressman, uh, if it's not asking too much, I would just like a planet to live on. I mean, that's what this next generation uh, feels when it comes to climate chaos. Speaking of the next generation, you were one of the youthful candidates for president here on the younger side in a field that features a number of them. What do you say to a voter who says, you know what, I like you, but I feel like you don't have the life experience necessary to lead the free world? Well, I'd put myself in the top tier of national uh, security experience uh, in this field, you know, having been on the Intelligence Committee, the Homeland Security Committee, and, and having worked as a prosecutor for seven years, uh, prosecuting homicide uh, cases uh, to juries. And, you know, Adam, I, I've been working since I was nine years old. Uh, I had a paper route, uh, and then, you know, I worked on construction sites. Uh, I worked as a referee uh, for my baseball games and an umpire, uh, you know, as well. And then I turned 16 and then just kept doing different jobs after different jobs. So I've, I've got, you know, real life uh, experience, but experience that matters uh, is knowing who our enemies are from abroad and defending from the Judiciary Committee attacks on the rule of law here at home. And so, you know, the American people can be rest assured uh, on day one, I'll be ready. All right, Congressman Swalwell, thanks for answering these questions. The even yep. tougher ones await, though, as coming up after the break, we'll bring our studio audience into this conversation. Stay with us. Hey, Facebook recently made some changes. Now you're missing out on lots of content from WMUR, but it's easy to stay connected. Go to WMUR's Facebook page, tap follow, then see first. 
That's it. Just two taps brings you back in the know. Welcome back to Conversation with the Candidate and our candidate for president, Congressman Eric Swalwell of California. This is the town hall portion of the conversation. We bring in our New Hampshire voters here who have all the tough questions. Uh, I'm going to fo uh, follow up with some if needed, and we'll have some social media questions Great. as well. But let's get right into it with our first question from Gary Evans. Thank you. Hi, welcome to New Hampshire. So the, uh, the New Hampshire House just passed two modest uh, gun control bills, yeah. uh, one for background checks and one for a waiting period. Our um, Republican governor has um, said he's going to veto those bills because um, he doesn't think we need them because we haven't had a mass shooting in New Hampshire. I think New Zealand had that same logic. Um, I'd like to know what, you, what gun control bills you would like to institute. Well, Gary, uh, nationally. Thank, you. thank you for the question. And I do think this has to be a national conversation. Your state is only as safe as the uh, gun safety laws around you. So you could be a state like California and have some of the toughest laws but if Arizona doesn't require background checks or they allow assault weapons, we have open borders between our states. And so what I'm proposing uh, first is a uh, nationwide background check law. So that's online sales, uh, gun shows, private seller to private buyer. I think we want to make sure that we know whether you have you know, a history of mental illness that would prevent you from uh, safely handling a firearm or if you have any violent uh, history uh, in your past. When it comes to Weapons of war, uh, assault rifles uh, in particular, I want to ban and buy back on the 15 million that we have. And I learned as a prosecutor, uh, one of the last cases I tried, uh, we had a young man, he was fired at 40 times, and he was hit just once in the thigh. And his mom asked me at the trial, she said, I, I don't get it. My son Gary, you'd think if you're going to get shot, getting shot in the leg or the arm is where you'd want to get shot. But the autopsy doctor testified that because of the sheer energy from the round, he didn't stand a chance. And so I'd say keep your pistols, keep your long rifles, keep your shotguns. Uh, I respect, uh, you know, the Second Amendment, but some weapons uh, I don't believe belong on our streets. But I also want us to invest in gang prevention programs uh, as well, uh, so that in, in cities like uh, Chicago and Oakland, where we have a lot of shootings and we don't learn about their names or their stories, uh, we understand what's going on there. So there's a lot that we can do. I'm not afraid of the NRA anymore. Good. The moms aren't. The students aren't. They just want us to be safe in our communities. Great. Thank you. Sounds great. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Gary. Next question comes from Kenneth Berlin. Hi, Hi Mr. Berlin. Welcome. Thank you. Uh, as an older aging adult, uh, my question is, what plans do you have to keep Social Security and Medicare solvent? Uh, thank you. What I would do first is raise the cap uh, on Social Security uh, earnings that, can, uh, that you would pay in. You know, right now, uh, at just over $100,000, most Americans stop paying into Social Security. Uh, so I would raise that cap uh, up so that more money would be coming in and it would be uh, solvent beyond just, you know, 2030. Uh, you know, past 2030, it's not fully funded anymore. And that's something that you worked hard and you paid into. But when it comes to Medicare, uh, what I would do first, uh, I support Medicare for anyone who wants it. That's my health care plan, is a coverage for all plan that would have a government option as well uh, as a public, as well as private insurance if you still want to keep it. And I think by expanding the pool, you could drive down uh, the overall costs. But I don't want us to just have a debate about coverage. I want us to find the unfindable, solve the unsolvable and seek to cure the incurable by making public investments in cures in our lifetime. And so that would mean more investments in data sharing, genomics, and targeted therapies, and seeing that as a way 
to bring down the cost of care, uh, particularly for a cancer patient, an Alzheimer's patient, a Parkinson's patient. Also, though, extend the quality of life and create a lot of new jobs uh, in the meantime. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. Yeah. Thank you, Kenneth. Quick follow-up there. Yeah. How do you make health insurance cheaper for those who already have it, if you're going to add that public option? Yeah, so one, I, I think with more competition, uh, so one, a bigger pool uh, means that you can truly cover the pre-existing uh, conditions. Uh, but, but second, uh, by, I believe, you know, having more competition on the private insurers, that would also drive down the cost. Now, partially to, to pay for it, I would put back in place the inheritance tax, uh, which the most recent Republican tax bill got rid of. I'd get rid of the corporate tax immunity that exists today for businesses that send jobs overseas. And I also uh, would reduce what we spend on nuclear weapons. Uh, we have spent more on nuclear weapons since 1938, almost 100 times more than we have, for example, on cancer research. And so I think, you know, by prioritizing uh, our, health and our health and education uh, over nuclear weapons, uh, we could start to make it a lot more affordable. Our next question comes from Paul Kafori, Sr. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Paul Kafori. I happen to be a lawyer. Uh, I'm sorry. Apparently, like you, and don't <laughs> please, please don't hold that against me. Um, I've had the opportunity over the years to travel throughout the Middle East, in particular. My question focuses on the Middle East. In light of the extremist right-wing policies of the hard-right Israel Israeli government, what would you do, sir, to promote a just peace? for both the Palestinians and the Israelis? First, I would fire Jared Kushner. He's no longer in charge of our U.S. Middle East policy. And I think it's an insult uh, to a problem, a challenge that we've had for so long that the president would put a family member with no experience on something that really requires, uh, you know, thought leaders and people who want a two-state solution. So I, I believe deeply in a two-state solution. Uh, but I also believe that you have to provide economic aid to the Palestinian people. The president took that aid away recently. We need to get back into the UN Commission on Human Rights to make sure that that aid uh, is being spent and that you know, there are human rights both in Israel uh, and on the Palestinian side. I would insist with the Prime Minister of Israel that he has to be serious about a two-state solution and that means no more settlements. I value our relationship with Israel. They are the only true democracy in the Middle East. But until you have two sides that sincerely want a two-state solution, uh, it's not going to happen. And, and so I will be someone uh, who will roll up my sleeves, but also recognize that there are already experts out there that have been working on this, and they'll be put on the job, not people in my family or people who would politically benefit from it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. And next question comes from George Matthews of Nashua. Hi, George. Hi. Well, I'm a strong progressive. Beating the current occupant of the White House is paramount. How will you distinguish yourself from your fellow Democratic candidates without destroying each other or scaring off the centrist voters? Yeah. I'll be able to take on President Trump as someone who was born in Iowa, educated in the South, married to a Hoosier from Southern Indiana, and elected in one of the most diverse parts of the country. But I'm the first in my family to go to college, so I know why people work hard and what they expect it to add up to. I've got student loan debt myself that I'm paying off, and I'm a father of two kids under two, so I understand the health care challenges people are undergoing. And so the way to beat this president is not to go into the mud with him. I think it's just as I prosecuted 30 some odd cases to a jury, it's just relying on the evidence and not dismissing people who were counting on higher wages, lower health care costs, and a brighter future for their kids, but to dismiss the person who has utterly, utterly failed them. And I'm ready to stand up on that debate stage, make that case, and offer 
an alternative for the American people. Thank you. Thank you, George. Quick follow there. If I read correctly that your father supports President Trump, and now he's going to switch <laughs> yeah. to you, obviously, yeah. but what's that like? I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I may want to go into the ballot box with him. Um, I'm the son of two Republicans, also, and my brothers are police officers. Uh, and, you know, I go on Fox News mostly just so they can see me on TV. Uh, but my whole life I've been working with Republicans, and I've passed legislation in Congress with Republicans, and I've pledged on day one. Uh, that I would put together a blended cabinet uh, of Republicans and Democrats. And I may have to send out a search party to find, you know, Republicans who will put country over party. But I, I really believe to have credibility to make these reforms our democracy needs, you're going to need a team of rivals. And uh, I, there will be a day after Trump. And I, I think we're going to need a leader uh, who recognizes that and can be a leader for all Americans. Next question comes from social media. This is Michelle Ackley Allen Newton. She asks, what solutions do you propose to alleviate our immigration crisis? Yeah. Our immigration crisis needs leadership, not showmanship. Right now, it's very easy to go down to the border and say that people who don't look like us, who are fleeing violence and economic despair, are going to take your jobs or commit crimes in our community. That's what the, the president does. He stokes fear. A leader would go beyond the border. A leader would go and work with the leaders of Mexico and, and South American countries to recognize the conditions in Guatemala and Honduras and El Salvador are so harsh that you have to understand if someone is leaving that behind to go across a hot desert with little food, little water, little clothing, they must see something better here than where they're leaving. And until we make sure that where they are now in those countries is better, they're going to keep coming here. And so that may mean a Marshall Plan uh, of our lifetime to invest in the economic uh, and opportunity in those countries, but also to put the humanitarian resources on our border so that a mom is not separated from her beautiful little baby and that children are not dying in our custody. I also believe I'm a former prosecutor, and so if someone is here undocumented and they're committing a violent crime, I think they've got to go, and we've got to make it clear. But I, I've seen across this country that the overwhelming majority of people who have come to our country, they want to just chase that American spirit of working hard, doing better, and dreaming bigger. Uh, and if, if that's the case, we should embrace them and distinguish them from those who want to hurt people and get rid of those folks. Next question comes from Heather Carroll from New Boston. Hi, Heather. Hi, Congressman. Thank you for being here. And um, thank you for taking my question. Of course. Um, if you are elected president, what will you do to stop um, the public health crisis that is Alzheimer's disease? Yeah. And I see you're wearing purple, and we wear purple uh, for Alzheimer's. That's, that's a way to understand the crisis. And today in America, 19 million people are providing unreimbursed care uh, for an Alzheimer's uh, friend or family member. And so uh, what I would do is first invest uh, in cures in our lifetime. That's why that's so important to me, uh, is that we're not just talking about coverage, uh, but that we're challenging ourselves to find a cure. And most Alzheimer's patients are taking therapies that were used 10, 15, 20 years ago. So we're not seeing you know, the updates and innovation that we could if we invested in the cures. But I also believe as technology and automation and uh, artificial intelligence displaces people in their jobs, we have an opportunity for a care economy. So my mom, for example, she's uh, in her early 60s. She'd kill me for saying that publicly. But she works as an administrative assistant and she's worried that technology could displace her from the workforce, and she still has seven to ten years uh, working ahead of her. If people like her, who are at the end of their career, lose jobs to technology, I think there's an opportunity to train them 
six to eight week courses on how to provide care to someone who needs memory care or you know, like a Parkinson's or Alzheimer's patient, that would also reduce the cost and what the burden is uh, on the government today. So there's opportunities here. I think we just, as I said, need to go big on the issues, be bold with the solutions, and do good in the way that we treat each other and govern. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Heather. Next question comes from Mary Kirstein. Hello. According to several sources, the U.S. is responsible for about 33% of worldwide arm armament sale. If elected president, would you um, decrease the U.S. role in international arms sales? Yeah, so I would first lead with treaties, alliances, and nuclear uh, weapon deterrence. Uh, so right now you see uh, we're increasing the arms sales that we're giving to other countries around the world and decreasing the way that we engage to try and find peace. Uh, you know, forgive me for this, but it is apparent, you know, you think of everything in like a parental metaphor now. But if you were looking at our foreign policy landscape, like a parent looks at a playground, you will see over the last three years, your child has gone, out, gone from hanging out with the honor roll kids, like the Brits and the French and the Germans, to now we roll with the detention crew like the Russians and the Saudis and the Turks and selling a lot of weapons, uh, for example, uh, to the Saudis. And it's not just that we're keeping bad company. It costs us more at home. It costs us more at home when you don't have treaties. It costs us more at home when you can't count on NATO. It costs us more at home when we're not able to count on South Korea and Japan. And so what ends up happening is that takes money away from tablets for our kids and affordable medicine for our seniors. So to reduce the number of arms that are just out in the world, to reduce what we have to spend on our own defense, I'll do what, what's hard, which is engage with our friends and strike uh, treaties with our enemies. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you, Mary. Next question comes from social media and Ellen yeah. Silly. She asks, which one of the other Democratic candidates, in your opinion, represents the biggest threat to your campaign? <laughs> All of them. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it's a growing emerging uh, field. There, there are candidates uh, in this field. Uh, I've gone to weddings of some of the people who are running. And, and for me, you know, someone like me is not even supposed to be in Congress. My parents didn't know a congressman until I got elected. And so it, it is kind of uh, surreal for me that that's the case, to have friends in the field. Uh, but I just rest, I'm rest assured that no matter who emerges as the nominee, uh, we will have someone better than who is in the White House uh, today. You have friends that you plan to stay friendly in this oh, race, yeah. or are you going to yeah. draw contrast? Uh, I mean, we're, I'm going to stay friendly with them, but I'm going to lead with my values. And, and again, I think what makes me unique is that I'm a candidate who is a working class candidate and, and still paying off student loan debt today, understands why people work hard and are frustrated that it's not adding up to more. I think I bring generational optimism as well, as, as well as geographical inventiveness representing a district in Silicon Valley and seeing that investments in technology can bring down the cost and extend the quality of life in healthcare and the government just needs to be a part of that too. But also experience uh, of, you know, even though I'm 38 years old, having been in Congress uh, for seven years, particularly on the Intelligence Committee, I think those three uh, traits, uh, someone who has working class roots, generational optimism, experience, that allow me to get the job done on day one. Next question comes from Marie Mulroy. Hi, Marie. Hi, thank you. Um, thank you for taking my question. I, and so this question is just basically, what is one thing as that, that you don't, that for, for voters that we don't know about you yet? Yeah, so one thing that I hope everyone gets to know about me is that I grew up in a town called Dublin, California. I moved and went to nine different schools and lived in 11 different homes before graduating 
uh, from high school. But stability for me was this town called Dublin. And I played soccer. I went to college on a soccer scholarship. And I learned uh, pretty quickly when I got better and better at soccer uh, that uh, Dublin didn't have a competitive team. So I had to play in another city's, uh, wear another city's mm. uniform uh, to go play soccer. And I learned that the nickname they had for us, because it was a, a low income, uh, at times low expectations town, they called us Scrublin. And I, I hated that, that that's how people thought of us, because we didn't have big employers, we didn't have you know, the big houses. So after law school, I came back home and I joined the Arts Commission and then the Planning Commission, started the Alumni Association for my high school, and then got elected to the City Council. And I worked with leaders in the town to turn around that reputation. And we invested in infrastructure. We built a new high school where when I graduated, a third of us went on to college. Today, 99% of the students go to college. We even have a damn Whole Foods, which I think <laughs> is a sign <laughs> that you've made it. So I hope the whole country will learn the name Dublin, California, because if you can do that there, invest in infrastructure, invest in schools, attract development, you can do that anywhere of the disconnected communities in America. Thank you. One quick follow here. Yeah. Uh, other than Congress, you've held a few other positions in office. Yeah. Which one of those do you think provided the most instructive learning experience for becoming President of the United States? You know, it would be being a city council member in a city, uh, especially during the economic downturn. We grew out of uh, the 2008 uh, downturn by making uh, investments, by having uh, ways that attracted businesses to come in, by returning their sales tax dollars to them if they invested in dilapidated uh, areas. And, and seeing a country that is disconnected in so many places where the people work hard and they've got grit and determination, but they don't have infrastructure, I would want to apply that same uh, you know, manner of practice that we did in Dublin across America. Do you know Gomer's gollies? Golly, 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 Sergeant, I just can't get over it. Get to know Gomer's gollies on Gomer Pile. Sponsored by Heritage Plumbing, Heating, Cooling, Electric. To have 30 minutes of questions and social media questions and from our town hall audience here in New Hampshire uh, on uh, with the Congressman Eric Swalwell who's running for president. So right. let's get right to it and we're going to start with Stephen Kidder. Hi Stephen. Howdy, thank you so much for being here. Of course. Um, my name is Stephen and I'm an ACLU voter which means I prioritize civil liberties when I cast my ballot. And an uh, issue that's really important to me is mass incarceration yeah. and I first off want to thank you for your vote for the Bipartisan First Step Act. Um, and then, additionally, um, with national momentum behind ending mass incarceration, would you commit to reducing federal prison population by half during a presidency? I'll commit to reducing federal prison population of non-violent, non-serious, non-sexual uh, offenders. Uh, and I was a, a prosecutor, and you know, I sat in a chair uh, where you know, I prosecuted some of the, the worst people in the world for the worst crimes, but also showed mercy where I thought you know, people should not be going to jail. But I saw the failures of you know, not having addiction services or job you know, training or retraining services for people who really, really needed it. So I, I voted for the First Step Act, which uh, essentially reduces the prison population for nonviolent, non-serious uh, non uh, offenders. I think it should be called the Last Step Act, though, because sending someone to prison should be the last thing you do once you've exhausted all other uh, remedies. What I would do first is invest in the communities that don't have investment in them. So when I was a prosecutor, I, too often I'd sit in a West Oakland apartment building talking to a, a witness of a crime, usually a young black man, and I would hear the piercing sounds of police sirens outside, and I'd see the payday lenders and liquor stores across the street, and I'd hear about the crumbling schools that you know, these kids would go to, and I knew it didn't matter how hard they worked, 
didn't matter how smart they were, if we didn't invest in them and believe in their God-given potential, they weren't going to have the same opportunities that I did. So I would first just invest in every community, put modern schools in every community, not just the wealthy communities. When it comes to sentencing, again, I would try and divert people from going to jail uh, as often as you can uh, and, and believe that, again, if you give them a skill, uh, that they'll have that dignity of work and they won't go into a life of crime. And then the last thing I would address would be prison reform. The first two are much harder. So we, we've done the easy step. Uh, now we need leadership. Uh, and I think a, a prosecutor in the White House, uh, someone who has demonstrated, uh, as I said, knowing uh, law and order, but also mercy and redemption and opportunity, uh, that can make a, a big step forward on this issue. Thank you so Thank much. You. Mm -hmm. Quick follow-up there. Yeah. It, there does seem to be consensus around uh, some leniency or amnesty, perhaps, for drug offenders. And you mentioned you wanted to keep the violent folks in. Yeah. When you talk about prison reform, though, how does that work? Because so often now we see people go to prison and they come out not rehabilitated, but even worse criminals, essentially. Right. So obviously in our prisons, I, I would like them not to just be housing units, but to be you know, learning units for those. Uh, and even, you know, I went to San Quentin Prison uh, not too long ago near my congressional district, and I saw that you had lifers learning how to code. And, and I, at first, I, I thought it was you know, counterintuitive, like, well, they're going to be here for the rest of their life. And the warden said to me, he said, no, he said, you're always learning. No matter what, no matter what your sentence is, we want people to always have that, that dignity of learning. And so I think if, if you can do that for a lifer, you should certainly do that for someone you know, who's going to get out and is going to be uh, productive. But as it relates also to drug use, I know this this state has been affected more than almost any other by the opioid crisis. And what I've seen is that decentralized models of care can really work. And I know Mayor uh, Craig here uh, has invested in you know, putting opioid treatment centers uh, at firehouses, and you've seen a reduction of 19% in opioid overdoses. And, and I think expanding uh, the healthcare resources, not just putting them all in one place at a VA or you know, putting them in hospitals, but at firehouses and schools, where we go in the community, having people go there to get treatment uh, rather than just one centralized place. Okay, next question comes from social media and Elizabeth Radisich. She says, I'm the mom of the cutest three-year-old twins you've ever seen. They're African-American. Since I'm not, I do a lot of listening to African-Americans to learn more about race and then I share what I learn. Who are African-Americans you listen to about race and what are some of the key things that you've learned from them? I'm lucky that I, I get to serve with uh, my hero in the United States Congress, uh, John Lewis. Uh, John Lewis is you know, a civil rights leader. I went to his district uh, last year and he and I did a couple town halls. Uh, and he is you know, a living activist. I mean, he you know, marched across the Edmund Pettus Bridge uh, for civil rights uh, you know, in, in the, the 50s and 60s, you know, led that charge and still does that today. He led us to a sit-in on the House floor couple years ago after the Pulse shooting in Orlando. So he is a model for me of, uh, you know, civil rights activism uh, and causing good trouble uh, to make a change. But I also recognize uh, that, you know, you have a different experience as a, as a black man or a black woman uh, in America uh, today. And a lot of that has to do with the way that you engage with the police or the way that you engage in a job interview or your opportunity to get a job. I do a few things to change that. First, uh, I would require uh, every police department in America that receives federal funds to have their officers wear uh, body cameras. Uh, that's for the police officer's security, but also for the community's accountability. I'd also require that the departments have to look like the communities where they patrol. 
too often, as you saw in Ferguson, you could have an overwhelming, uh, a majority of the population is African-American, but almost no African-American officers. We have to change that to get rid of the implicit bias that exists. I chair the Intelligence Modernization Subcommittee on the intelligence community, and my number one priority there is racial diversity and making sure that our intelligence community, the CIA, the FBI, the NSA, that they look like the country that they're asking to defend. And so I think just putting those diversity uh, requirements uh, on our federal workforce and on our police departments can go a long way to getting rid of uh, bias uh, and that those unfortunate experiences uh, that people in the black community still go through today. Quick but uh, hefty yeah. follow-up here. A lot of candidates have taken a position on reparations yes. uh, for uh, slavery. What's your stand yeah. on that? I've signed on to the bill uh, by Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee uh, from Texas that would have a commission on reparations because I think it, it, it is time uh, that we have, our con have that conversation uh, and put forth you know, the, the fairest remedy uh, for a community that has still uh, you know, paying the price for you know, sins from so long ago. I mean, they're still living that today. And that, that's why I think investing in those communities that need it most. I've seen it in Oakland. I've seen it in Baltimore where I went to law school. I see it across America. Uh, invest and believe in those communities has to come first. Next question comes yeah. from Benjamin Pelletier of Nashua. Hi. Hi uh, do you believe in adding more seats to the Supreme Court? If so, how do you determine what people should be added? Uh, no, I, I don't support that. Uh, I support just win, baby. If we win, we can put justices on the court uh, that will follow the law and are qualified. And I, I don't want that to be seen as an alibi for not being able to win. Just winning means going to Alabama. I did that in the midterms. Going to Indiana, going to Oklahoma and Kansas and Iowa. And I, I went to all those places. And I saw there that people there are just like, you know, voters in New Hampshire who have flipped their entire, you know, state legislature and congressional delegation and Senate delegation blue. You just have to go there and organize and talk to those folks and tell them what you believe. And if we do that, we can have a Supreme Court that is fairer than today. But I, I don't support changing the rules, uh, especially if it will look like to the American people we're only doing it because we don't like the composition today. Thank you. Revealing your East Bay roots there with Just Win Baby. <laughs> yeah, applied that's the Oakland Raiders. Oakland, yeah. Al Davis of the yeah. Oakland Raiders. So. Yeah. Okay, full, uh, a um, social media question coming from Dennis Goodman. Why do average Americans have to work over 20 years to retire with bare bones benefits while our representatives can retire at a very young age with a full pay and health insurance? So that, that's not true, but my dad did send me an email a couple years ago. It was one of those like forward, colon, forward, colon, forward, colon, <laughs> forward, colon. And then in the email, he said, son, I hope this is not true. I'm very disappointed. And it was one of those chain emails that said that members of Congress get, you know, pensions for life, salary for life, health care benefits. I'm on my wife's health care because uh, it's better than what we have. There is no pension for life. There's no health care for life. Uh, but the, the premise of the question, which is that if you work hard in our country, it should add up to you doing better and dreaming bigger. That's not true for most Americans, and that's why I'm running for president. I want to change that. 80% of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Only half of us are invested in the stock market. We're in a top floor economy today, where most of the benefits of this economy are staying on the top floor. And so what I would like to see uh, is guaranteed uh, savings accounts. So in addition to Social Security, have a, a scheme where uh, each paycheck an employee, if you don't have an employer-provided pension, the employee would put money in, the government would put money in, and the employer would put money in, and that would increase uh, what your retirement savings is uh, when you retire. And so I think there's a lot more that we can do uh, so that folks have dignity uh, in retirement. Uh, but right now, it's just making sure that 
this economy today is working for everyone who wants to work hard, not just folks on the top floor. Next question comes from Joan Whitworth. Congressman, there is a very real possibility that after the 2020 election, the Senate will remain under Republican control and the House Democratic. Knowing this, how are you going to convince voters that you can accomplish some of the more liberal objectives, such as an assault weapons buyback and ban, and then as president, actually deliver on your campaign promises? Yeah. Well, well, first, is, is the nominee, I will do everything I can to win Senate seats in places like Arizona, Alabama, Colorado, Maine, you know, where winning there would give us the Senate. And I think, again, being someone who has lived in a lot of this country uh, and is a son of a Republicans, I can go to those places and be effective. Second, you're still going to have to work with Republicans. And I founded a group called the United Solutions Caucus in my first four years when I was in Congress, and we had a working group with Republicans and Democrats. Donald Trump came in and blew up any hopes of bipartisanship for almost the whole Congress. But I'm not going to hold that against Republicans, and I'm going to ask them not to hold how they viewed me you know, against Democrats, because there will have to be a day after Trump. So the, the first thing I think we have to do is put in place the democratic reforms that our country has seen really have a wrecking ball taken to them. Not allowing family to be you know, in positions of power. Not cashing in on access to the Oval Office. Not allowing foreign nationals to give gifts to the person uh, in power. Showing your taxes. I think those are principles that Republicans and Democrats have always agreed upon. And I think using that as a foundation, you can start to take actions on some of the bigger stuff, like health care, education, gun violence. When it comes to guns, I just do not accept that this is a divisive issue. But I have come to realize that it is a tactic by the NRA for us to believe it's a divisive issue. So if they can make you think that talking about gun safety is divisive, then most politicians think, well, I'm not going to touch that hot stove. But I've talked to the moms, I've talked to the students, I've talked to the survivors, and they believe that you're right to dance at a concert, laugh at a theater, pray at a church, synagogue, or mosque is greater than any other right in our Constitution. And that right to live is where we should start when it comes to gun safety. Thank you. Thank you. Next question comes from Joan Krimlisk. Welcome. Joan. Um, Thank you. Let's see, about energy, how would you accomplish a plan for both clean and renewable energy for the country? I would invest in it, but I would also make sure that those workers who are working you know, on fossil fuel uh, extraction sites or in a fossil fuel job don't feel like they're given a false choice. And that's too often the case in America today. They, they believe I have to choose between my job and clean air and clean water. And, and as Democrats, we're losing a lot of those uh, good, good paying union job workers. And, and so what I would do is invest in technologies that could bring their sites to carbon neutral, give them a skills bridge into wind, solar, fusion, alternative fuel cells, but also get into an international accord uh, again. I, I pledge as president to host in the United States an international accord uh, here so that we can join the rest of the world because we can't do this alone. We need other countries and other countries need to know that we're serious about it. You know, as it relates uh, to you know, some of the pollutants that you're seeing here, I know of the issue of PFAS uh, and more and more contaminants being found. Uh, I would you know, insist that communities uh, that are contaminated or have pollutants have access uh, to genomics uh, in, you know, in, in blood tests so that they can see if their condition is a result of their DNA code or of their zip code. And if it's of their zip code, then you can better hold accountable 
the polluters. But that also means having an EPA that is fully funded and fully on the job to keep us safe. Thank, Thank you. you. Quick follow-up there. Yeah. One of the things that they've identified that could really reduce auto emissions is obviously driverless cars. And that's coming someday, yeah. perhaps whether we like it or not. But as president, would you be urging that day along, trying to foster a day when people are not driving their own cars yes. and the cars yeah. are driving I, I want us to always be a country that embraces technology, but that also ensures that technology always creates more jobs than it displaces. And so the cost of innovating, the cost of taking the factory floor from 1,000 people to 100 people to one person has to be that we're investing in new skills for the workers that lose their job and making sure that kids in school today have the agility of skills to keep changing with the economy. So I, I've got a son who's going to be two next month, and I tell my wife that he's going to have to learn how to be a, a chemist, an engineer, uh, he's going to have, a, have to have a software background, and God forbid, uh, sir, he's going to have to learn how to be a lawyer, uh, just like <laughs> you and me. But you're going to need to have all of those skills uh, as the economy continues to change, but also take care of the people uh, who are displaced. Next question comes from Leonard Morrill. First of all, thank you for spending your time with us. Of course, thank you for having me. You have supported legislation in Congress that would prevent the Department of Justice from interfering in commercial marijuana sales in states that have legalized the drugs. Many young people have stated that they started with marijuana and graduated to more powerful drugs. Does this bother you? Uh, well, it, it would bother me if we didn't have you know, limits on it or we didn't give young people awareness uh, in the classroom about you know, the, the use of whether it's marijuana, alcohol, or any harder drugs. But I, I have family members myself uh, who have MS. Uh, I have an aunt who has MS, and uh, she uses medicinal marijuana as a way uh, you know, to just use it as a way for pain relief. Uh, and right now, so many of the different states that have allowed it are really blocked from fully distributing it to help people because the federal government doesn't allow it. So businesses uh, can't bank it. They have to use cash banking, which is not really safe uh, either for those sites. Uh, and they can't get the deductions uh, that you would otherwise get uh, from our tax code. So I support pulling marijuana off of Schedule 1 and just taking it off the schedule uh, of drugs, allowing the states uh, individually uh, to decide you know, whether they want it to be legalized uh, or whether they only want to limit it to medicinal use. Uh, but I think across the country, it, at the very least, we should be able to study its medicinal effects and allow states that want to either legalize or allow their uh, patients to use it medicinally to do it without fear of prosecution. Thank you. Yep, thank you. Thank you, Leonard. Next question comes from social media, and Roland Young wants you to explain your position on the Electoral College. Yeah, just win, baby. <laughs> Again, I, I would love for it to be the popular vote. Um, of course, we know that you know, two of the last, you know, I think, four elections, uh, two of the last four presidents uh, were elected without uh, the popular vote. So I would love for it to be the popular vote. But with limited time and limited resources, I want us to just go to the places where we've traditionally won but didn't win in 2016. Michigan, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin. But also understand that Indiana voted for Barack Obama in 2008, and then we lost Indiana in 2012 and 2016. So we can't just be a party of the, you know, the last states that voted for us in the last presidential election. We, we have to keep seeing voters everywhere. And, and I feel comfortable that because of the way that I lived and the way I live today, I can credibly add states in the general election. I can tell voters I see you, I hear you, I know how hard you work, and I'll put forth policies that are for you. 
So you're essentially saying the founding fathers were right. They were yeah. very suspicious of the concentration of power and the idea being that they wanted to mitigate the popular vote in some way. They were right. They were right, and, and even if we don't like the result and we want to change it, I don't see small states voting against their interest, so I want to focus on things that can actually get done. Certainly the yeah. constitutional amendment is a high right. bar on anything right. these days. Okay, next question comes from Kathy Hoey. Hi. Hello, Hi. Congressman. How are you doing? Um, what specific initiatives would you push as president to combat the problem of human trafficking? Uh, the question was about specific initiatives with human trafficking, and, and I was a human trafficking uh, prosecutor uh, in Alameda County in Oakland. And, you know, domestic trafficking uh, is the real issue in America. A lot of people think human trafficking is, you know, international folks you know, being brought here. It's actually uh, our own kids, uh, teenagers, runaways, uh, who, you know, get pulled in to that lifestyle. So first, uh, I, you know, I would fund uh, resources for police departments, you know, to make sure the community's aware. Uh, and a lot of times it's just seeing the signs of human trafficking. So a, a hotel owner, you know, to see uh, the signs of human trafficking. You know, people on some of the, you know, different, uh, you know, corners or different streets that have high volume of trafficking for the store owners to see it and to report it. To invest in community-oriented policing. I have a brother uh, who is a community-oriented police officer. He's on a federal grant and he runs a police athletic league. And so he's able to engage with you know, young men and women and, and hopefully have a relationship where if someone sees a friend that could be trafficked, uh, they can tell him. But also to make sure that we have tough crimes for any trafficker, uh, tough laws for any trafficker uh, that would traffic a young woman or a young man. So I, I feel comfortable because of my experience of doing this, of putting away uh, traffickers, uh, but understanding that it's also what we see and what we report uh, in the community. It could make a big difference, and, and I would lead on that in the White House. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you Kathy. Next question comes from Carol Morrill. Welcome back to New Thank Hampshire. I, uh, in time, it takes a change of the federal law to be able to negotiate the lowering of prices for prescription drugs for Medicare. What steps have you or your colleagues taken to start the process? Yeah, so I, I support uh, allowing negotiation for prescription drugs for Medicare and also in a coverage for all model, I would support it uh, for that. Second, I, I also believe uh, that it would require the Department of Justice being up to the job uh, when it comes to antitrust and making sure that there's always competition uh, in the way that you know, prescription drug companies uh, you know, offer products and that no company has a monopoly that allows them to drive up uh, the price. But third, as I said, I want to be the cures candidate. I want to be the candidate that invests in the National Institutes of Health uh, and, and really gives them the resources they need uh, to find cures. And what I've learned talking to scientists is that if we had data sharing requirements on every clinical trial, because right now you could have failed clinical trials, get federal research dollars, and never have to share the results of those failed trials, if we just started to share what we already know, that would go a long way in finding a cure and bringing down the cost. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Carolyn. Next question yeah. comes from Dan Bergeron. Hi, Dan. Hey, how are you? Good. As a Manchester school board member, I'm certainly looking forward to your response to this question. Yes, sir. Uh, what does education funding look like in a Swalwell administration, and how do you see that impacting communities such as Manchester and other New Hampshire yeah. counties. Well, 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 thank you, Dan. Thank you for serving. I know it's tough sure. in New Hampshire uh, when you get uh, very few dollars from the state and you have to rely almost entirely on property taxes uh, that are collected. Uh, what I would do and what I would change is I would view school construction dollars and school modernization as a federal responsibility. And so I would put the federal government 
uh, in the business of funding the school districts that have the most infrastructure needs. And I believe by doing that, that would reduce what you are spending out of your own pockets on construction, and you could devote that to teacher pay, because I think teachers you know, are not paid what they are worth, and that reduces your ability to re you know, recruit and retain them, but also increase uh, what you can invest in as far as uh, labs and, and research uh, and tablets uh, for the kids. But I want us to come to the table, and you know, education's always gonna be a local possession, uh, and the curriculum, that's gonna be decided by local school board members who know best, but I think you should have the federal government uh, as a partner and an advocate uh, when it comes to some of your biggest costs, like construction. Fascinating. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Quick follow on that one. Where do you stand on school choice and charter schools? A big yeah. debate, obviously, within the Democratic Party and whether or not all schools should stay public yeah. or whether people should have options. I don't want us to give up on public education. Uh, I'm the product of public education, but I do understand uh, why a parent would want to make you know, a decision to send their kid to a charter school. I just think charter schools should have to live up and meet the same standards as public schools if they're going to get public dollars. Next question, social media. John Heisel asks, are you for taking handguns out of teachers' hands? I don't want to arm teachers, I don't want to arm rabbis, and I don't want to arm a theater usher. So I don't want teachers armed. Simple no. as that. All right. Christy St. Laurent is coming down. This is where uh, on our um, Price is Right moment here. Come on down. There you go. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Christy? Thank you for being here, Congressman. In your first term in Congress, you mentioned the United Solutions Caucus, yeah. uh, bipartisan group. And one of the things that you guys met about and agreed on was actually the SAVE Act that you put forward yeah. to cut wasteful government spending over 10 years. And you've participated in other bipartisan efforts. Is it easier or harder now? You're in your fourth term. Is it easier or harder now for bipartisan efforts? And how do you see your role as president with the experience in the House and the bipartisan work? Yeah, so I've done it before, so I know, you know how to draw on that experience. I'll be honest with you. It's been tough with President Trump. Some of the relationships that I've had you know, have been frayed. And I've told my Republican friends in Congress and outside Congress that this is not being anti-Republican. It's, it's just being anti you know, someone who doesn't respect the rule of law, the freedom of press, you know, the institutions that we all hold so dear and allowed a foreign adversary to attack us and can't condemn that attack. And so I'm against that. I'm not against them, but I understand why they are going to defend their president and they feel like I may be against them. So that's why I've pledged as president, I would put together this team of rivals because I do think you'll need Republicans in your cabinet to help you and have credibility with the country as you make some of these democratic uh, reforms. And I'm pledging to do that, not because it's easy. I know it's also not necessarily popular uh, among some Democrats, but I, I just believe in our democracy so much and I care about the future of this country that I think you're gonna have to do that to move us forward. Thank you, Christy. One of the outcomes we've seen with divided government is an increasing reliance of the executive on executive orders. Yeah. What's your position, especially from a legal perspective, what's your position on the use of executive orders and how often would we see you using them as president? Yeah, I, I served in Congress, so I want to see you know, the will of the people carried out. And sometimes that means you know, you're going to have to you know, strike deals, uh, you know, compromise uh, in ways that you wouldn't otherwise want to. But I, I think I will be a nominee that will allow us to keep the House and add to the Senate so you can have a governing majority and address the issues of climate, education, gun violence, health care. That, that's what I pledge. But I also, again, I'm, I'm not you know, so, as I said, uh, extreme in, in my ways that I, I can't work with Republicans uh, on issues. I have a bill right now 
uh, with John Shimkus of Illinois. He's a Republican, and it would allow any child born into poverty, if they have a rare disease, they would have access to genomics. So they would, they would not have to go on a diagnostic odyssey. They could find that out uh, right away. And so I think there's a lot more that we agree on uh, than people believe, and we're not the enemies that this president wants us to be of each other. Okay, uh, next question comes from, let's see, we've got, uh, it's a social media question, Jan, oh, they're updating me, Shar Shelsky, here we go, uh, just updated. Simple one for you, why are you a Democrat? <laughs> it's not just to upset my parents. Um, <laughs> I went to college on a soccer scholarship and didn't really think too much about who I was politically. I went to George Bush's uh, 2001 inauguration, it was the first time I'd gone to Washington, D.C., and then when I got injured, from that scholarship, uh, I had to start paying out of my own pocket and taking out student loans. And at the University of Maryland, uh, we had a Republican governor who kept increasing tuition uh, semester after semester and putting, you know, the state, balance the state's budget on the backs of the students. And I would get these notices from the registrar's office that you're going to be kicked out of your classes, you're going to be dropped from the school unless you can make your tuition payments. And it was a stressful time because uh, we were just scraping everything together to make it work. And so I saw how a Republican governor and a Republican party valued education and what it meant for people like me. And working as a Capitol Hill intern for my own Democratic member of Congress and seeing the values Democrats had on this issue, I just believed that the Democratic Party was a party that believed if you worked hard, no matter who you are, what your parents did, who you love, who you worship, it should add up to doing better and dreaming bigger. That's about the time I became a Democrat. If you're elected, You'll be the first president with a toddler in the White House since John F. Kennedy. <laughs> you had to have had this conversation with your wife. How do you make life normal for your family if you become the president of the United States? Well, it's tough. Uh, you know, just two kids under two uh, is tough right now. My wife has a very good job, uh, and she travels a lot for her job, and she jokes that the only way any of us get sleep around here is to take a work trip. Um, but we're just, we're, again, I think we're very normal people, like we're, like most people our age with kids, you know, our friends and our life center around our kids' friends uh, and their parents. And so I wouldn't want to deprive them of that. You know, she's from Indiana. We go there a lot. We would continue uh, to go there. Uh, but, you know, I, I think seeing that their father, uh, you know, hasn't changed who he is, uh, is the best thing for them. And uh, one question we've asked a lot here, and you've touched on a little bit of this, but what adversity have you faced in your life that has made you a better leader? Mm -hmm. When I was 10, I had Bell's palsy, and that was tough to overcome. I had an eye patch uh, every night when I went to sleep, and I'd lost uh, most of my smile. 80% um, recovered on that, but you know, I saw how much my parents uh, stressed out over that, paying for you know, the different treatments and, and doctor's visits, but worrying about me you know, just being treated differently and acting differently, and so I, I understand uh, you know, the healthcare side of that. But I, I also believe just going through college and law school and just scraping by and, you know, taking full-time jobs and full-time classwork, you know, I saw why people work hard. And I, I always believed that there was something better at the end. But when you're in a position like that, you're able to see all the people who work just as hard, but it's not adding up but they're just running in place and they're one financial emergency away from being wiped out or they're taking on 10 to 20 extra hours a week uh, in overtime just you know, to get paid what they would have been paid 10 years ago 
uh, for a 40-hour week. And so having a responsibility to make sure it's not just me that did better because I worked hard, but it's anyone who works hard does better. Congressman Eric Swalwell, thank, thank you, you for joining us yeah. on Conversation thank with you. the Candidate. Yep. Thank you to the audience. Thanks for joining us for WMUR's The Trail, from New Hampshire to the White House. If you have a moment and can write a review or subscribe to this podcast, we'd certainly appreciate it. You can also find us on WMUR.com and our free WMUR app 24-7. See you for the next episode of this podcast next week.